Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show live from Belfast. We examine the pandemic north and south of the border and we'll be taking a look at how Northern Ireland has handled the COVID crisis. Sinn Féin MLA for South Belfast, Communities Minister Deirdre Hargy will join us live. Professor of Molecular Virology at Queen's University Belfast, Professor Ultim Power will also be with us tonight alongside Dr Francis O'Regan, a GP based in Armagh talking about the rise of the COVID cases here and the threat of the Delta variant. And later, The Political View with journalist Amanda Ferguson. And I'm here in Dublin as the Cabinet approves 100 guests at weddings from August the 5th and the government says that vaccines for, will be soon available for 12 to 15-year-olds. Get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. Welcome. Well, first tonight, we're joined by Sinn Féin MLA for South Belfast Communities Minister Deirdre Hargy. Deirdre, you're very welcome along. Uh, today is a big day for Northern Ireland and for the city in Belfast uh, in particular because venues are opening up and social rules have been eased in this uh, COVID time. Can you explain to us how restrictions have loosened up following that announcement yesterday? Yeah, well, the executive met yesterday. Um, we met with the chief medical officer and scientific officer as well, and the minister for health. And we looked at a number of potential easements. And obviously, these were put back from last week to allow us to analyse the data more. But as of 6 p.m. today, uh, theatres and music venues opened up again to the public. MOT centres have opened up again for cars to be checked. Places of worship, we have also lifted the restriction around face masks when people are seated in places of worship and for those masks to be put on again after that. Um, and then also for families, they allow up to 10 members of three households to meet indoors, again maintaining social distancing, making sure they wash their hands and that the rooms are ventilated. So it has been a step forward. We're obviously conscious of where we are with the pandemic at the moment and hospitalisations. And again, we're trying to do this in a graduated and managed way. Was it only a matter of time before you decided to take this step forward? Or did you have to think about the challenges posed by the Delta variant and the substantial rise in case numbers here? Yeah, well, we have managed this through. A few months ago, we published a pathway to recovery out of the pandemic and how we would manage and mitigate against the pandemic. We knew that there would be um, subsequent waves and we're now seeing ourselves in the midst of the fourth wave in this pandemic here. And therefore we had to take um, a slow and graduated response. We've drew some criticism for that, that we haven't moved quickly enough. But I think that we have done it on the basis of the scientific and health advice. And we have moved at the pace to ensure that our health service can cope. We know that there are pressures there at the moment. And we wanna make sure that any risks are managed 
that mitigation measures are built in and with those easements um, that have come in to effect today, um, those mitigation measures have been built in and there has been engagement with the sectors that have been involved. Yeah, take us through the pressures on the healthcare system because there was a call for more ICU beds to be made available to cope with the rise in hospitalisations. Yeah, well, we're dealing with a legacy of 10 years of underfunding, of austerity that was imposed in terms of Westminster and budgets. And obviously with a pandemic on top of that, it has had um, a massive impact on our health service. We have seen, unfortunately, recorded three deaths as a result mm. of COVID in the last few days. And indeed, our sympathy um, and condolences are with those families affected. We have seen an increase in cases and obviously pressures on certain hospitals and trusts and particularly our emergency departments. Again, at the same time on what we're calling on, we have seen um, over one million people who have been doubly vaccinated. We know that the vaccination programme is having a positive impact and we want to encourage the rest of the population mm -hmm. who have not been vaccinated to make sure that they take up the opportunity to do that. And indeed, the health service, our health staff, who have been amazing over the last 18 months, have been doing all that they can to roll out clinics, to have pop-up clinics, to attend key events, where they know that they can get demographics um, that needed to, to still be vaccinated. And we know, Deirdre, that naturally many people live in an all-island way. They cross the border every day. After all, it is an invisible border. But what sort of impact do you think that's had on case numbers, the difference between the north and south approach to this pandemic? Well, we always advocated for an island approach. We thought that that made sense in terms of treating the island as one unit from a scientific point of view we would still press for that approach and we know that there has been collaboration between the two health ministers across the island. We have met through the North-South Ministerial Council and indeed we're meeting again this Friday um, via Zoom um, just to discuss the issue of the pandemic. Obviously we know that thousands of people cross the border at uh, hundreds of points each and every day to go to work, to go to education, uh, for healthcare needs and for other needs as well. I think what's important is to try and encourage vaccination, to ensure that we have an efficient testing programme, that we're tracing, that we're isolating as well. And also for the public, for all of us to play a role in making sure that we're social distancing, that we're wearing masks, that we're ventilating our rooms, because we know from the data, from what virologists are saying, that that does have an impact in terms of controlling and suppressing the virus. And we hope that we can continue to work uh, three collaborations across the island to do that. Okay, Sinn Féin MLA, Deirdre Hargi, thanks for joining us tonight. Now, a little earlier, we took to the streets of Belfast to find out what people thought of the new loosening of restrictions and how they're working for them. Yeah, very happy with how things are going. Cautious, but happy that things are getting open. Yeah. Yeah, we're delighted to see places opening. Uh, Ashley was in Kilkenny there last week and we had a lovely time but the weather was beautiful but it was a bit disappointing that you couldn't go into restaurants and cafes. Because like down at home like there's nothing I can do, only like go to the beach and all that stuff. It's all kind of one island anyway and as far as I'm concerned if one, you know, if someone in Donegal is going to get it, you know, someone in Derry can get it just as easily, you know. To me it's the same as kind of England, Scotland and Wales, you know, they're all the one. So, Well, it was cheaper to come up here. It was cheaper, actually, to come up here for four days than what it was to go to Killarney for two days. Yeah, I might say, yeah, yeah it's it a big different here. I see people are more cautious here, and the shops here are very strict about wearing your face masks. 
and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, we find it quite different as well. I find it quite reassuring that you're taking it more seriously here. Like, I like that you've got hand sanitizer everywhere. I like that people are still wearing masks. It actually feels much more reassuring than home. Yeah, yeah seeing family, yeah, and, and friends, not being able to see anybody, I suppose. Yeah, that's the biggest part, but work keeps you going, I suppose, if nothing else. It's actually quite okay if you kind of protect yourself, you wear your mask, you wash your hands, you do what you have to do, you keep your distance, I think it's okay. I, like in some of the shops, they don't wear masks and they're very relaxed when it comes to wearing the masks. I think. Like, we're wearing them everywhere, but everyone isn't wearing them. There. I think we're, we're progressing slowly, which is good. I wouldn't like to be where England is. I really wouldn't like to be kind of launching into full open um, sort of experiences, but I thought I'm happy enough with what we're doing here. At the minute, there's nothing more we can do, I think. If we just go slowly, it'll be okay. Well, joining me now is Professor of Molecular Virology at Queen's University, Belfast, Professor Alton Power, and GP Dr Francis O'Hagan, who's Deputy Chair of Northern Ireland's General Practitioners Committee and a GP based in Armagh. You're both very welcome along tonight. I want to come to you, Professor Power, and what do you make of the data you're seeing now, the case numbers here in the north, and how they're playing out in terms of hospitalisations? So the numbers are obviously spiked quite a lot, Claire, over the last few weeks, and that is always a concern when you see the numbers going up in that direction. I mean, it literally is a vertical plane at this stage. What's very, very encouraging, though, is that the number of hospitalizations on the back of that are significantly lower than they were, say, in, the, in um, January or in previous waves that we've had. So that's telling me that the vaccines are actually working quite well for what we wish to have happen with them. So it's very, very encouraging from that point of view. Difficulty though with the high numbers is that the more we allow this virus circulate, the bigger the opportunity we have to get new variants, which then may cause a bigger problem for the vaccine and the, the ability of the vaccine to be able to protect against any new variants. So this is something we have to control very, very carefully. And with that in mind, we saw the announcement yesterday about the further easing of restrictions that have come into place now from six o'clock this evening regarding increased socialisation and live venues being opened. Uh, would you welcome those changes given the COVID case numbers or is it a case that now, as you say, if hospitalisations aren't rising at the same rate as they were last year or earlier this year, that it's safe to do so? I am anxious. I'm genuinely anxious because the more we give opportunities for people to meet and interact with one another, the more the virus is going to circulate. That's what this virus does. It's capable of transmitting from one person to another very, very efficiently. Um, and as I say, the more opportunities we give for that virus to transmit, the more opportunities we have then for new variants to arise. So this is why I'm concerned about it. Um, I hope that people are sensible enough to realize that the pandemic is not over yet. It's still here. There's still people getting sick. There's still people being hospitalized. And while the vaccines are working as we'd hoped, they're still not 100%. So it means even people who are double vaccinated could still end up in hospital and get very sick with the, with the virus. And, and Dr. Francis O'Hagan, I want to come to you now. It's obviously been a very busy time, but what are you seeing now in terms of cases coming to you? Um, the population, the age you're seeing people picking up this virus now, given that the vaccination numbers are on the rise? 
Yes, and it's great to see the vaccination numbers on the rise and we can't emphasise enough how important it is for people to be vaccinated because we, we've seen recently that if you're back doubly vaccinated, you're 90% less likely to end up in hospital. And that is really, really important. You may well get the, the virus, but you don't necessarily get very sick. We in practice are incredibly busy. We're seeing numbers at the minute that we would normally see in the middle of winter. And we're seeing it in July, supposedly our quietest time mm -hmm. of the year. So we have patients coming with the virus. We have patients coming with illnesses that they have suppressed throughout the pandemic and are now bringing forward to us. We have all our other things that we do every day in practice, our cervical smears, vaccinating our children, ensuring that you know, we, we have our, all our patients who are diabetic and asthmatic and have them all reviewed and have all their bloods done. So there's so much to be done. And yet on top of that, we're now seeing the numbers rising exponentially as Dr. Power, Professor Power has said. Uh, and the numbers are rising, but we are seeing restrictions easing here. They're following the path Boris Johnson first uh, announced Freedom Day, I should say, earlier uh, this month. And it was only a matter of time that we were going to see increased uh, restriction easing here. Are you worried about that happening now with the number of cases you're seeing? Yes, we are. We are concerned because um, unfortunately the numbers in hospital are going up. Our numbers have risen to almost 250 um, as of last night and our numbers in ICU up to 29. That's really concerning. Mm. And we're also seeing younger people in hospital. We're seeing pregnant women on very unwell in hospital and we're seeing some children unwell, which we really haven't seen before. So this is really a virus of the unvaccinated at the minute and a virus of young people who haven't had the opportunity to get fully vaccinated. So we are trying in every which way to try and speed that up. But young people are particularly vulnerable. They're likely to go out and party. Sure, why not? It's summer. Um, so they just have to be careful. Think about it. Could you possibly, you know, meet outdoors? Could you possibly yeah. ensure that you keep a little bit of space? Uh, you're in Armagh, border region. Are you seeing an increase in cases as a result of that? Yeah, there has been an increase in cases along the border. Now, today, the vast number of cases are in Belfast, but up to that, we have yeah. seen both in, in the Derry, Straban area, and Donegal, and also in, along our border in Armagh, um, we have seen free flow of people back and forward across the border. We have been opened up for hospitality in advance of yourselves. So that has meant a lot of people coming north for staycations and you know, then traveling back again, as well as the people who normally travel for work and for you know, legitimate um, okay. business every day. Okay, Professor Alton Power, we've seen the Irish um, government has got the recommendation of NIAC to extend our vaccination program to cover 12 to 15 year olds. Is that something you'd like to see here? It is. Um, the, so the recommendation is already available from the MHRA. So these are the regulatory authorities that actually regulate and decide whether or not something is safe mm -hmm. to be used in that age group. They have said yes, but the body and the organisation that's holding it back are the JCVI, so the Joint Committee of Vaccines and Immunisation. And they're saying no for the moment. And they're basing it on the risk-benefit analysis of, well, how much risk is infection in young kids relative to potential risks associated with the vaccines and at the moment they're hesitant. I would like to see it rolled out before the main reason for me is that first of all they're going to get back to school in November, in September, uh, in August, September. So they're going to be all mixing with one another. They're going to have 
undoubtedly more circulation of the virus within those children because while they don't necessarily or the vast majority don't necessarily get uh, very ill with the virus they do spread the virus clearly they spread the virus so this is one concern so if they were vaccinated again that would help reduce the level of transmission that will happen within the community significantly and therefore help the whole of society. So what about that factor in reaching herd immunity? Do 12 to 15 year olds need to be vaccinated in your opinion in order for that to happen? So the magic number, and again it's, it's a guesstimate at this stage, was probably about 85% and the, that's calculated on the basis of how infectious the virus is. Unfortunately this Delta strain is far more infectious than the original strains we saw back last March and April. So therefore the herd immunity magic number keeps on going up and this is part of the concern. So I'm reckoning it's probably in around 85% of the pop of the total population that needs to be vaccinated in order to protect everybody in a herd, in a herd immunity basis. And that's gonna be difficult to achieve if you already cut out, like in Northern Ireland and the UK at the moment, it's 18 and younger. That's a sizable proportion of the population that won't be vaccinated, we can never vaccinate. And therefore it means that we have to get like 95, 96, 97% of all of the rest of the population in order to reach this herd immunity goal. Uh, we've heard fears from people like Dr. Gabriel Scali saying that if you let the virus rip, as so it's been criticised in England, in England, that they're allowing that to happen essentially among a population that isn't all fully vaccinated, there is the threat of new variants. Do you share that view? Oh, and do you think it's something that you're at risk at here in Northern Ireland? Absolutely. We've already seen it with the Alpha variant, which is the Kent variant. Okay, so this happened in Kent, so it's not like it's, it's some exotic place someplace else in the world. This happens wherever the virus is replicating, wherever the virus is transmitting and infecting more people. The frequency and the possibility of having a, a new variant arise increases dramatically. And this is why we have to be extraordinarily careful with not allowing, doing the exact opposite and being very careful about how we allow uh, the virus to be able to transmit from one person to another and keep the message out there very, very strongly that the pandemic is not over. People are still getting sick, still getting infected and still passing the virus from one person to another. If we're not careful, we will end up the worst case scenario with a variant that is not affected or not controlled by the vaccine. Francis, from a GP point of view, are you seeing people really relaxing now that restrictions are eased? Is that something you're worried about? We're talking about mask wearing in places and hand washing and those basic hygiene measures in order to suppress the virus. Do you worry that they're being eased up at all or is there a more cautious approach, would you say, among members of the public in the North? I do think a few weeks back, whenever our numbers were quite low, people were starting, we were starting people to get a little bit complacent. But now, I mean, today and yesterday in practice, um, so many of the people on my list that I spoke to either were positive or were isolating because they've had a, a significant contact with a positive person. And that's bringing people really back into focus to say, hold on a wee second here, this isn't over. I could still get sick. And, you know, um, as well as that, we're having trouble staffing both, you know, our health service and many of our other industries because if you look at the hospitality service they are particularly staffed by young people who haven't had the opportunity to be fully vaccinated yet and they're at risk of getting pinged and having to self-isolate so i think there's a little bit more reality coming back and people are saying hold on i'll just stay with my mask i'll try and keep my distance and i'll wash my hands and that's absolutely what they should do
Okay, my thanks to you, Dr. Francis O'Hagan and Professor Alton Power for joining us tonight. Now, after the break, restaurateur Michael Dean will be joining me here. And we're also looking at theatres reopening for the first time in months. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. Now with indoor dining resuming south of the border this week here in Belfast, indoor dining and drinking has been ongoing for several weeks now. And I'm joined by a restaurateur, Michael Dean and Jimmy Fay, who's artistic director of Lyric Theatre in Belfast. And it was a big night for you tonight as well. I know, Jimmy. Um, I want to come to you, Michael, because you have six restaurants in the city. Yeah. So when the decision was made to reopen indoor dining, you must have been a very happy man. I was, but it was quite wobbly, the whole decision. Once we'd been doing carryouts and takeaways for four months, then followed by the other four months and whatever. So I was very apprehensive when we did reopen because we didn't have any theatre, we didn't have any concerts, we didn't have any, um, any air travel, uh, big conferences. So we were really basically going to put our foot in the water and see what happened. And thankfully, with the support from down south and people who did make the effort to Belfast, we've got quite a good name, quite a good brand. And it, it's been much better than I ever thought it was going to be. We, I, I mean, if we had been operating on a 50% volume, so sort of break even because we had all the chairs taken out, with capacity taken out. But, you know, we've been, we've been fully booked in every restaurant and for every service for the past three months. And um, that's as good as what it was before, to be completely honest. In terms of guidelines in the north for indoor dining, have you had to impose much in the way of social distancing between tables? How has all of that worked out? Because there's a lot of extra policing that's happening south of the border that, that restaurant owners and publicans are having to get used to. We're quite lucky because the, the spaces that we have in the restaurant are quite big. So to take some of the tables out, we don't really notice that much. Um, the difficulty can be the customer with the hand sanitising, the masks, just, just the usual things, but you know, what we needed to do beforehand was to go through a channel of proper compliance so we were all on the one hymn sheet. You know, pubs and restaurants aren't the same. Restaurants aren't the same as nightclubs, even the world, in the same rabbit hole, so to speak, but we've handled it quite well. We've had great air conditioning systems put into the building, air change, we're changing air every 10 or 15 minutes, because people were frightened. You know, when people were frightened by some of the, the laws that were put down, 
it, it, it didn't come across very well that restaurants were bad places to go to. Mm. And if I thought that COVID was spread in a restaurant environment indoors, I would have given the keys back a year ago. So no, I'm, I'm happy and I think the customers are happy. You said you're worried about a wobbly start. How was business in the first week? Was it initially booming or was there that hesitancy, that nervousness among customers that held them back from indoor dining for a little while? Not, not at all. Um, and I must admit, the, the amount of cars that were coming up from Southern Ireland, I know there's been a lot of difficulties down there and I have a lot of friends down there and it's been so, so difficult for them to, to take all this on board, even mm. a lot more than what we have. But um, I'd say every other customer was from the South. Um, and you know, there are people that like to party, they like to spend. And um, it's, it's, it's been absolutely fabulous. But I was concerned that the business wasn't going to be strong enough to carry it through. Because at the end of the day, you were still holding your rent, okay, with a reduction in VAT on a few other bits and pieces. But you had fixed costs, you had the furlough system, but you still had to pay. So we were walking, we were walking a long tightrope and um, we got through it. And were you somewhat worried about that business from the South? Because at the time, the vaccination programme wasn't, they weren't really at the same level. I mean, the reason you could argue that indoor dining and all of those things reopened sooner was they felt they were on a, they were on a, a better path at that time and then you had a lot of people coming up wanting to party wanting to enjoy restaurant life i guess you're not going to complain about it but were you worried at all definitely not i mean when without being sound and political i mean i would have had a, a, a one ireland rollout i would have sheltered the island down and um, i would have put the vaccine rollout all over the island but we, we know the problems that, that that we encounter here and we had to deal with it yes yes i, w I was but you know people come to the door you're not going to ask them if they're Protestant, Catholic, green, white, whatever. We welcome them with open arms and we love the people from the south of Ireland. absolutely adore them as people from Northern Ireland. And I just, we just love this thing to go away. We just love it to go away yeah. so we don't have to talk about, talk about it anymore. We miss Brexit and everything else, you know. We just <laughs> want it to go away. Well, it was a big day for you and something you'd really welcome, Jimmy, because the Lyric Theatre opened tonight for the first time in 16 months. Yes, we've been closed since March 15th, 2020. And we've been busy. We've produced an awful lot of things online. We've collaborated with the BBC. We've had a lot of theatre that's been going out. But it's the first time we've been able to welcome audiences back in tonight at half seven. And it was wonderful. Now, it's like Michael said, we've had to be compliant. There's social distancing in place. There's an awful lot of new regulations that we just had to get our head around. Even the ticketing system was a little bit of a kind of mystery. You know, you have to scan this thing in. So we had a first audience in tonight, 156 people in an auditorium that usually sits about 400 people. So it's tricky. It's good this week because we have a youth drama show that's on. That is absolutely brilliant. Dracula, they're getting the value for the money. It's the first professional show. It's really important to us. And it's magic because we have felt left out. You know, unlike, say, Michael, and I was in Deans of Queens last summer, had a brilliant, brilliant time, um, and a few restaurants last summer, and it was, it was wonderful. We had not been allowed to w welcome audiences back in. And it just felt like we were being penalised for something or being used a little bit to say we still have restrictions in place, when actually theatres were not going to cause any kind of it, you know, they were not going to be big spreaders of the virus or whatever else. So it's just been a really fantastic time to be able to open tonight. And what about those new guidelines? Because you can open, but it's only at one third capacity. Um, do you think it's, it's workable? Can you turn a profit? Is it about that for you at this stage? Or is it just about bringing confidence back to live events and theatre going and getting the buzz back at this no, point, and Jimmy? No, I, I think this has been important. Like, the Lyric is the chief producing theatre in Northern Ireland. It's a really important theatre. It's a historically significant theatre as well. 
we have been able to put in place different producers to try and match money that we knew we were not going to get in. We knew we wanted to be some sort of test to see what it would be like to get audiences back in. But most venues, most theatres cannot afford to do what we're doing at the moment. You know, so we will have to look at kind of social distancing will have to disappear sometime this year because we can't operate that way. Otherwise, I mean, if we all go back into lockdown, that's a different thing, but we're not going to be able to operate that way. We can do it for the next three months because we put enough money into place to pay for actors. And that's the main thing, is to get the artists, get the actors, get the technicians, get all these people who have been not been able to work you know, some of them have been on furlough in terms of the theatre, but a lot of them have been surviving on universal credit. So to give them a job again is actually the best thing we can possibly do at the moment. I take it you feel this could have happened a lot earlier? Oh yeah, I think we should have opened it in hospitality. I, I, I honestly think we could have done that. Now I think it's tricky. I think, you know, the executive have very difficult decisions to make. I think it's been really, really, um, you know, difficult for them to come up with these solutions. But I feel that we were just left on the back burner because either there wasn't an interest or whatever else. We should open the hospitality sometime or been allowed to, okay. allowed to welcome audiences back in and work it out ourselves. Um, and it's been a bit of a fight to try and get it open, but thankfully, and I'm really grateful that they did allow it to happen. Uh, Michael, obviously tourism is very important in terms of how your restaurants work and how busy they are. Do you feel that tourists are coming back and people are beginning to enjoy life again and that sense of normality that we're all craving? Well, I think, I think it's the people from the south have definitely kept us going from all walks down the south. We do get some English visitors, Scottish, whatever. We haven't got a lot of Europeans, but that has its own problems, I think, because... Before this, when Titanic Centre opened, we had Japanese, we had Germans, we had Russians, and the whole troubled thing had disappeared, and we, we were definitely having a great time. So now we've, we, we've a different war to fight, and um, we, we've, got to, we've got to just recut our cloth differently. Okay, Michael and Jimmy, thank you very much for giving us your thank thoughts you. tonight. Now it's back to Dublin and Gavin. Thanks very much, Claire. More from Claire in Belfast a little bit later in the programme. But it has been a busy day here in Dublin too. People planning weddings have finally got some clarity on how many people they can actually invite. From August the 5th, that's next Thursday, the number of guests allowed will rise to 100. And also today, the Cabinet has approved the use of COVID-19 vaccines for people aged 12 to 15. Here's a little bit of what the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, had to say a little earlier. Uh, the advice that I have from NIAC and from the Chief Medical Officer is that they would be particularly keen that children who have underlying conditions or indeed children who might live with people who might be immunocompromised or in other ways vulnerable to this virus, uh, that a lot of consideration would be given to vaccinating those children. But really what we want to do is make sure that the information is available, that the experts are available. Uh, parents, of course, will have questions. They will, they will all do what is right for their child. So what we're doing now is we're working uh, with the HSE to, to, uh, to develop the rollout programme. And, and what I want to see and what we all want to see is we want to see this open to children very soon. Well, joining me for more discussion on the day's events in Dublin is Fine Gael TD Emer Higgins and the Irish Examiner's political editor Daniel McConnell. Um, Emer, I'll come to you first. Um, everyone knows that those who have been trying to plan weddings for the last couple of months that they've been moved from pillar to post and they haven't known what was coming and some certainty now for them is great news and we're delighted and we all wish them well. But if they're allowed to have 100 people at weddings, why is it that only last week Leo Varadkar was telling them to assume it would be 50? Well, I suppose sometimes when you're the tarnished and there's a microphone in front of you, you realise everybody's hanging off your every word. And his strategy was very much to, to play it safe. And I suppose ultimately what we're saying to people is 100 guests is the maximum you can have. 
I think he was making the comment if he was if he was to get married, he'd be planning for 50, which of course would be safer than 100. But I think couples, brides and grooms who at this point may have had to reschedule three or four times what's going to be the happiest day of their lives. They deserve at the very least certainty. We did give a commitment that we will be aiming to have 100 guests from the 5th of August and it's fantastic that we've been, been able to pull that commitment. But in, in trying to meet that commitment though, if Leo Varadkar wanted to give certainty then for a whole week when people were looking at the precipice, looking at their guest list, deciding how many invites they could set out, the advice from leaders of government going on the record into microphones was that they should only plan for 50. Yeah, and, and I suppose ultimately that's created stress and that is regrettable that, that couples have had to go through stress. But what we have given them today is certainty and, and they have the ability now to, to plan ahead with that certainty. And I think that's something that people really need. I mean, the last year and a half has been so difficult for everybody, but it has been especially difficult for couples who've had to change plans two or three times and for the industries that support weddings. Uh, Danny McConnell of the Irish Examiner, uh, there didn't appear to be any of the usual choreography that comes with COVID announcements today. There was no cabinet subcommittee last night. There was no meeting of Neffet. There was no late night sh sit down with, with Tony Houlihan. Was this a solo run from the government where they decided to act on weddings without public health advice? I think ultimately from government's perspective they said well never have given their advice you know that that piece of the jigsaw was already done and ultimately they were just simply making a decision in line with what they had already been told uh, I have to counter Emer's point there a little bit I mean Leo Varadkar said very clearly I don't want to create any uncertainty mm. by, by, by saying something and by saying what he did, he created a huge amount of uncertainty because there was always that expectation. The government, because the government had said, "Listen, the direction of travel is fifty, and then to hundred in August." Oh. You know what they should have done was saying it's fifty, not mention the hundred at all, and then that they would have avoided this scenario. But again, what we've seen is mixed communications. The the tarnisher by either by design or by accident putting his foot in it, creating a huge amount of uncertainty. And I think sooner or later, like the, the communications people who get very well paid in government have to, you know, bring these people to book because as Emer does say, people do hang on their words. And it's, I quite, <coughs> sorry, I just don't think it's acceptable that he can go out and say what he said last Thursday and there not be any consequences. So what, what should he have said then in those circumstances? If someone says to him next week or last week, how many people are we allowed to have at weddings? What, what What's the textbook answer that he should have given? Well, I think what the mistake was by, was flagging the hundred two or three months ago, but had they not done that, then they would have said, listen, your advice is 50. And what they could have done is saying, well, listen, things are improving to a certain degree that from September onwards or whatever like that, we can move to 100. But by leaving people up right up to the last minute and this kind of 50, and it hasn't just been in terms of weddings. Look at the poor treatment of what happened to restaurateurs and publicans last week. Last Friday at 11.30, regulations were issued. That's no way to run a country. That's no way to communicate with people whose livelihoods are on the line or whose people like uh, you know who are hoping mm. to celebrate their most important. I've been married 10 years. The difficulty, the politics of putting a wedding list together when there was no restrictions is hard enough. <laughs> trying to do it when you've, you're, you're trying to balance between 50 and 100. Like, so I just think the public have been shoddily treated by the government. And, you know. Eamor um, Higgins, why is it that the government is now allowing 100 people to meet indoors if they're unvaccinated in those circumstances? Because again, every, a wedding is a very important gesture, but there's, there's all these other sacraments and other occasions for which the limits haven't changed, other ones which can't be rescheduled. Why are weddings different? I suppose there, there is an acknowledgement that weddings are different, that they are particularly special. And, and really what we're saying to people is to, 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 use your own, to use your own initiative, to make the decision and the judgment call for yourself. Um, if you're not vaccinated uh, and you get an invitation to go to a wedding and you've been told there'll be 100 people at, at that wedding, then that's your decision whether or not to go to that. In the same way as people have had to make these decisions. And would you be advocating that, that, that prospective brides and grooms have that discussion and, and encourage people not to go if they don't feel it's safe? No, I think it's up to people to make their own decisions. It's up to people to, to have their own personal responsibility. I, I mean, we've been asking that for, of people right throughout this pandemic and we've been criticised 
criticised quite a lot for uh, giving people orders and directives and not letting them use their own initiative. I I mean, in some ways, and and I do take on board some of what Danny has said, but in in some ways we can't do right for doing wrong. I mean, this is an ever-changing environment that we're in. I mean, we're responding all the time to new new stats. We're responding all the time to new trends. Uh, and I think the government is doing its absolute best to get communication what? out there. Just in terms of what we said about restaurants, mm. um, like, like really what that stems back to is a month ago when the decision was to pause the reopening of indoor dining on the basis that we would be rolling out the vaccine cert. And when you actually just look at where we were then, like at that point, just a month ago, mm. 40% of our adult population was fully vaccinated. And we're now at 70%. In one month, we've mm. made mammoth progress. Like we really, really have. It does have a knock-on consequences for not being able to issue digital COVID certs to all those people to make sure they can avail of the same services. Absolutely. Though. And now we're at a point where if you're getting vaccinated at the moment, those digital certs are coming in seamlessly. We've had to go backwards and retrospectively do it. And, and that's been difficult. Of course, that's been challenging. But that's that's the, the parameters in which we're operating in Se- the middle of this kind of a pandemic. Separately, no one's been here before. We now have the cabinet decision today that vaccines will now be rolled out to the to 12 to 15 year olds. This is always a very sensitive area. Vaccination is always sensitive for adults, let alone for children. Will there be some sort of special coordination or some special communications message to try and ease people's fears about this kind of thing? Yeah, well, Minister Donnelly said it there in, in, in your, your piece there, Gavin, that um, there's going to be information made available to parents. There's going to be an educational element to this. Um, at this point, we've got um, NIAC approval. We've also got the European Medicine Agency has approved these of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for children over the age of 12. So it, it's gone through the regulations. It's gone through the authorization process. Now it's about making sure that we we, we bring people with us on this, that we bring parents with us on this journey. That's why it's, it's going to be only with, obviously only with parental consent for teenagers. But it's really important that... To, we understand the context that this decision is being made in. It's being made in the context of where one in five of our cases currently are within teenagers. And, and we want to try and vaccinate mm. as much of our population as possible. And that includes rolling it out to teens. I mean, we had a huge amount of discussion earlier in your programme about Northern Ireland. And like, you know, Northern Ireland in January were the first out of the starting blocks. They started strong mm. on vaccinations and they started early. And, you know, there was an awful lot of disquiet about how far behind we were. Mm. But not only have we accelerated our plan to the to the point that we're now, we, we've now we're, actually we're, surpassed them. Not ne- just not just gained ground. Neck, neck surpassed them, them. We've surpassed Israel. And, and I do think it's just important for your viewers to, to know there's positivity out there. You know, we hear all the bad news, mm. all the bad stories, all the bad stats. This is a positive news story today. Uh, Daniel, it is going to be a bit of a hard sell to try and convince many parents who are sceptical about stories they've heard about previous vaccines that this is worth doing. And that does have consequences because if vaccination is as much about the public good and altruism as it is about personal cases, it's going to be a very difficult campaign. It is. um, But I suppose the, you know, the, the carrot is if you want your school or your kids back in school in September, get them vaccinated. I mean, one of the main advantages of where we are now compared to where we were last year was, you know, um, the vaccination process is now, most teachers will now, by the time the schools return, will be vaccinated. Mm. They will be open to the 18, 17 year olds in their fifth years and sixth years who are the most vulnerable or the most liable to, to be infected. If they're open to vaccination, that dramatically changes the, na- the landscape of the, the safety risk in terms of schools. So I think there's a very compelling argument for those who are nervous in any way around um, uh, about you know, the flip side it. of that, though, people were worried that suddenly they might be touted that they might not be allowed to go back to school or that schools simply won't function if the vaccination isn't taken up by teenagers. Yeah, I don't think so. I, like, I, you know, I, I think ultimately what you know there is that element of consent and that element.
moment of choice always has to be there. Okay. Uh, and ultimately, there's also going to be, you know, there's going to be a conscientious mm. objection to a lot of these things. But ultimately, you know, in, in the main, if you're talking about the odds, if you get a majority of people taking it, it creates mm. a much more, uh, much more benign environment. Briefly, Danny, you were reporting this evening in the Irish Examiner, and people might have seen the, the article online already, that the Taoiseach was blindsided by a proposal to Cabinet today to appoint Catherine Zappone as a new special envoy for freedom of speech and thought. How exactly can the Taoiseach be blindsided by something approved by his own Cabinet? Well, he wasn't brought into the loop in relation to the proposal before it went to Cabinet. He certainly raised objections and certainly concerns, as my information, to the manner in which the proposal was brought. He didn't object to the person or the candidacy of, of Catherine Sapone. He did... A procedural in, problem. It was essentially that, like, you know, there's a meeting of leaders the night before Cabinet. This was not raised in this form. He was not aware of the name before the Cabinet meeting happened. And so, so there's a meeting of coalition leaders the night before cabinet where they cabinet. go through the agenda yeah. and the Taoiseach was unaware when it came today that yeah. Catherine Zappone was going to be given My information is that he was aware that there were a number of ambassadorial appointments made but he was unaware of the name that Catherine Zappone was going to be added in relation to the special envoy. Uh, this is not the first time Fine Gael, mm. no disrespect, uh, have sought to use the last cabinet meeting of a dull term mm. to, ra to ram something through. Let, we let us all think of Seamus mm. Wolf's appointment to the Supreme Court last year. Um, and... Um, Ultimately, it was made clear, or certainly has been made clear to me, the teacher raised objections to ultimately, however, those questions and concerns were addressed. He also okay. raised a concern around the role en of, a, of an envoy and whether or not it was appropriate in this circumstance. He ultimately, however, his, his fears were assuaged and he did approve the appointment. Ian, seems to remember it's only about a calendar year since Leo Varadkar piped up at a cabinet meeting and said, if this is the way we do business, we won't be doing it for long. It, it's hardly fair if a Taoiseach is blindsided by a proposal to his own cabinet. Well, th these are the reports coming from cabinet. I don't sit at cabinet. I certainly couldn't make a comment on what the Taoiseach knew or didn't know going into the room. But what I will say is, um, Catherine Spone is somebody I've admired for a long time. She's done a huge amount of work with Uncle Wouldn't Zan she have got Tala. the job then if it was publicly advertised? Quite possibly, absolutely. And I suppose... So shouldn't my, that have been done then? Quite possibly. My, my own background is I come from a corporate world, so I would absolutely totally value uh, op open competition for sure. Yeah, but this is a 13 or 15 grand role too. I mean, I, I don't think... We want to make huge, huge mountain out of a molehill here either. Plenty of viewers, I think, who would take a 13 to 15 grand roll without a tender. Uh, we will leave it there for the time being. Emer Higgins, Danny McConnell, thank you both very much. We'll have more from Belfast with Claire and her panel after this quick break. Welcome back to The Tonight Show live from Belfast tonight. And I'm joined now by journalist Amanda Ferguson. And it's certainly been an interesting few days for the executive, hasn't it, Amanda? But first I want to get to those hospital numbers and the rise in COVID cases. Uh, they're pretty concerning here, aren't they? Yes, they are. I think that we recorded just over 1,400 positive cases today. And sadly, there were three deaths. You know, there's over 200 people uh, in hospital, and that includes uh, babies, and it includes uh, you know, uh, men in, in their 30s to, to their 50s who are unvaccinated, and, and also reports about pregnant women uh, being seriously ill with COVID as well. So I think that the clinicians are, are sounding the alarm bells uh, at the same time as, as we're easing, so it's making people a little bit uneasy. Can hospitals cope with the demand? Well, I think that it's been described that they're, I think it was described as a quadruple whammy, that they're facing COVID pressures, that they're facing other pressures, uh, that, you know, the people coming into hospital perhaps with 
uh, conditions that uh, they've sort of sat on during during lockdowns and things like that. And you've also got an exhausted workforce. So I think that um, it's, it's a sort of perfect storm of factors, including um, staff having to self-isolate uh, to self-isolate whenever they're being pinged, uh, you know, by by the COVID app. So I think that it's it's all combining to put a lot of pressure on staff. Uh, at the weekend, uh, two of our health trusts uh, put a shout out on social media asking off-duty staff could they come in, you know, from their leave uh, to support uh, staff because it was just, it was becoming uh, an untenable uh, scenario. And you know, one healthcare worker that I messaged, you know, how his work, the one word reply was crazy. Right, and just to get a sense then of how these decisions were made to further ease restrictions here, was there pressure then coming from England, Boris Johnson announcing his Freedom Day? Was it always going to be the case? that Northern Ireland was going to follow suit? It feels as if it's a, it's, a, it's a slower pace of the same thing. Now, we know that throughout the pandemic that the Stormont government has taken its own choices at various points and hasn't always followed uh, with uh, what's happening in London. Essentially, we were given a date of the 26th of July. We were told that the, the decision would be ratified on the 22nd and all of the easings that were due to play take place didn't take place they were delayed some of them uh, until Monday and then for, uh, further reasons are being delayed again uh, until Thursday but this is all happening uh, while our numbers are rising and we know that the vaccines are working but I think at this point we really need to make sure that more younger people get vaccinated and also that we reduce transmission because if we find ourselves in a position where one of the variants dodges the vaccines I think we're in serious trouble. And is there uh, reservations among young people in getting the vaccine? Is the message getting out there? Um, or, or is that a worry? Is that something that they're trying to promote more here in order to get things back to normal? Well, just over 82% of the population in the north uh, is vaccinated at the moment. We know that the age group that is of concern is uh, the 18 uh, to sort of uh, 40s age group. Uh, particularly the younger age group. Now, we know nearly 60% of younger people uh, have come forward, but th there does uh, need to be uh, more. I think there's been a real uh, focus on that in recent days, but perhaps some of the messaging could maybe move to where younger people are more likely to uh, receive uh, the information. And I think that whenever you're talking about that 18% that aren't vaccinated, among that community, there's going to be, you know, across the different age regions, there's going to be people who are anti-vaxxers who are never going to be convinced about this, but there are also people who are hesitant and they're people who are, are falling victim uh, to misinformation um, and you know they're, they're a very small number of people who can't actually get it but I think that there's a lot of online uh, myth uh, circulating at the moment that really needs to be cracked down on. What's the feeling about all the cross-border trade? There's a lot of people coming up to enjoy the hospitality here. You've had indoor dining for a matter of weeks and now we have venues reopening, we're going to have concerts back here and um, it's certainly a big incentive for more tourism coming from the south. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly been very interesting. You know, I've been up and down to, to Dublin since, since May for work and I've been sharing the train with uh, young people who've been you know, partying up at the, at the weekend and you certainly heard from taxi drivers and uh, restaurateurs and uh, from uh, pub owners about uh, the sort of cross-border trade. But I think we have to remember that while there are two jurisdictions on this island, a lot of people live all island. A lot of people uh, you know, are living in those border communities where they're crossing uh, the border multiple times uh, a day. But that certainly has been a feature. And I think one of the things when we look back on all of this is over the we, it should have been made clear that this was going to be a long-term two-year three-year project and also there should have been more uh, collaboration and integration uh, across the island and across both islands I think. Yeah there's been a lot of criticism of that that we didn't treat this with the all-island approach when we see 
the divergence now between North and South. Do you think that's something that politicians now could potentially look at in the months ahead? <laughs> well, they could look at it again, but I think it's always going to be the same problems that we've had in the past. I think that um, you know, at various stages of the pandemic, the North's been doing better uh, as such in the South, or the South's been doing better than the North, and that has been a feature. Uh, but certainly um, it, it has felt as if the, the fact that we're an island, um, the fact that Britain's an island, an island and that Ireland is an island, that a benefit has been squandered, particularly in the first waves of the pandemic when we saw other countries uh, adopting a different approach from us uh, and we just went the opposite way. OK, my thanks to you, Amanda. Well, that is it from us from Belfast tonight. Matt Cooper will be back with you tomorrow night in Dublin. But from all of us here, good night. Take care. a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.